WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, October 16th. We'll continue to get different perspectives on the war in the Middle East. On Friday, we had journalist Julia Yaffe from Puck News, who said she wrote from her Russian-Jewish background perspective about what she called historical illiteracy about the Jewish experience that many other people have. Today, we'll get some thoughts from Tahani Mustafa, Palestinian by background, senior analyst at the International Crisis Group with a focus on Palestinian affairs. The International Crisis Group is an independent organization working to prevent wars and shape policies that will build a more peaceful world. That's how they describe themselves, a tough job right now. Dr. Mustafa has a background in security reform and security governance in the West Bank. She's worked with the United States Security Coordinator and the Jordanian Public Security Directorate and has been an assistant professor of political science at Mutai University in Jordan. Dr. Mustafa, thank you for joining us. Welcome to WNYC. Hi, thank you for having me. I saw that you were quoted in a Washington Post article back in March called The New Generation of Palestinian Fighters is Rising Up in the West Bank. They quoted you saying that across the West Bank, the widespread public frustration and desperation is there for another Palestinian uprising. You said, I think it's going to be a lot bloodier, far more diffused, far more fragmented, unquote. Can you describe what you were seeing back in March as some recent background before we get to the present? So there had been a new phenomenon, uh, or what everyone was classifying as a new phenomenon, uh, that had been kind of brewing since 2021, May 2021, which was the last conf- cross-border conflict we saw with Gaza and, and Israel and the unity in the father. Um, and so for for the last two years, you've seen younger generations of Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, which for a very long time, for the last decade and a half, has been very quiet, um, start to resort uh, to armed resistance. So, you know, and even those that weren't necessarily engaged physically in armed resistance were starting to support the prospect of of, of uh, re-engaging in armed resistance, which for a long time um, has not been the policy of the Palestinian Authority or the governing party, Fatah. You know, they relinquished uh, that trajectory of, of, uh, of liberation during the signing of the Oslo Accords. So it was, you know, it was a huge moment uh, Back in 2021, when you start to when you started to see the formation of armed factions, uh, primarily composed of young men that were 18 to 25, um, they had come from areas where the PA is or, or the Palestinian Authority is largely marginalised. Um, but more importantly, they weren't affiliated to any single established faction. So they started to form their own groups. And a lot of the thinking behind that was many of these young men um, were incredibly frustrated with the status quo. Many of them felt like it was no longer sustainable. Uh, this had nothing to do with economics, which was, you know, the perception at the time that these are young, deprived, poor, um, you know, uh, young boys who have nothing better to do. That was not the case at all. A lot of them actually came from, you know, very well-to-do families. So a lot of those that were engaging uh, in, in armed resistance came from, did not come from the poorest segments of their communities. And the primary root of, of, of a lot of their, their drive was political. You know, a lot of them were frustrated at the denial of their basic rights, like the freedom of movement, you you know, you could be born in Janine or in, in a place like Nablus and never, ever have the right to ever go to a place like Jerusalem or to, or never have the right to go visit Haifa and go to the beach. 
Um, so that frustration really brewed and started to show itself or, or started to manifest itself in the form of armed, armed resistance. And for the last two years, especially since 2023 with, with the new right wing government, I mean, th- these last two years have been some of the deadliest in the West Bank since the Second Intifada. And I saw you quoted in a Times of Israel story in October of last year about Palestinian feelings about Hamas. You cited, quote, trends within the Palestinian political arena in which Hamas garners widespread support because it's the only organized alternative to Fatah, which is governing in the West Bank, and the despised status quo it embodies. But I think that we're still relating to the West Bank. So were you surprised by the attack from Gaza last week in that context? No, not at all. And I don't think we should be treating these two territories as mutually uh, exclusive because a lot of the sentiments that were being echoed in the West Bank are exactly the kind of sentiments that were being echoed back to us over the last week as to what drove this attack, as to what the uh, what, what Hamas's conception of victory is, you know, what the ultimate rationale behind all of this is and how Gazans themselves are, are perceiving the cost and benefit to this. Um, so we really shouldn't be treating the sentiments that are being felt across the territories as, as two entirely different things. They're not at all. There is a general united sense of frustration amongst Palestinians. And to go back to that point about the the support that Hamas was generating over the last year or, or over the last two years, there's a reason for that. Palestinians are, are completely divided politically. They've been divided for a very long time. But the one thing that they are united on is their frustration at the status quo. But in the absence of having any alternative, any viable political alternative to the governing party of Fatah, which has done its utter its 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 utmost to ensure that there has been no opposition to it over the last uh, three decades, Hamas really is the only alternative. Not because people are necessarily religiously inclined, but because the left are completely divided. Palestinian civil society is almost non-existent. All other factions political parties exist in all but name. So the only viable opposition, organized opposition, is a a group like Hamas, whether it's politically or militarily. How popular among Gazans has the Hamas leadership been, though? Reading now from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy think tank website, uh, describing a poll conducted in July that found Hamas's decision to break the ceasefire with Israel at that time, not as much in the global news as what's happening now, but that was a thing in the summer, was not a popular move. It says, while the majority of Gazans, 65 percent, did think it likely that there would be a large military conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza this year, a similar percentage, 62 percent, supported Hamas maintaining a ceasefire with Israel. Moreover, it says half, 50%, agreed with the following proposal. Hamas should stop calling for Israel's destruction and instead accept a permanent two-state solution based on the 1967 borders. And finally, it says across the region, Hamas has lost popularity over time among many Arab publics. This decline in popularity may have been one of the motivating factors behind the group's decision to attack. So I'm curious how much you agree or disagree um, with that political analysis and take those numbers as meaningfully representative? I mean, there's there's far more nuance there than just um, concrete statistics and, and uh, you know, certain checkboxes that often come with uh, statistic polling. But I will say this, uh, you know, that is, there is some partial truth to that. Hamas's uh, lack of popularity um, you know, is is certainly something that it's had to grapple with for quite a few years now. 
Uh, and that's primarily because it has an abysmal governing record. You know, Hamas is, like I said, no different to, to Fatah necessarily. I mean, in terms of being an organized opposition, yes, but otherwise, in terms of its governing record, corruption, uh, you know, the way that it, it too has in Gaza uh, clamped down on dissent, you know, people are equally unhappy with Hamas as they are with Fatah. You know, I think we need to start thinking about Hamas as any other kind of political party. Not all Palestinians necessarily adhere to its ideology or support it. But that doesn't mean that the frustration that Palestinians feel um, is enough to, to to completely rule out, you know, a, an organization like Hamas that really does present the last vestige of organized resistance to the occupation. Because ultimately, whatever their micro differences may be amongst Palestinians, one thing they are united on is their frustration at the status quo. Now, at the time, yes, many Gazans, uh, and including our own colleague, by the way, who we have now on the ground in Gaza, um, Many Gazans were, you know, anticipating a, an attack at any moment. You know, many just felt, you know, the situation was completely on edge for the last two years and, and everyone was anticipating something kicking off. Um, you know, I, I, again, I can't really speak to how that polling was done, but from the sentiments that, you know, myself and, and, and other observers who have been on the ground for the last year were getting, was that, you know, something like this may not be what people necessarily wanted, uh, but at this point in time, Hamas has managed to, you know, at a time where it has been deeply unpopular, it's moments like this where its support tends to, uh, tends to sorry, tends to see a rise. And that's what we're seeing is that there are numerous um, segments of the Palestinian population that, again, do not adhere to its ideology, but do support what it ultimately represents, which is pushback, pushback against what in the West Bank has been the deadliest year for Palestinians um, against the backdrop of continued Israeli targeted assassinations, search and arrest operations, which have numbered something like 500 a week for the last year now. Um, you know, we're seeing the continued uh, process of settlement expansion, land grab, settler attacks, especially with the new government that has only served to embolden uh, settler violence. In the Gaza Strip, Gaza has been under a blockade for the last 17 years. Life has been completely uninhabitable. Um, so, you know, when Hamas did conduct its operation, I mean, the fact that you had vast amounts of Palestine, of, of Gazan civilians joining in on that, you know, this was something they kept very tight-lipped. Even their own political leadership were not aware of it. But the fact that you had vast amounts of civilians and the fact that it actually gave Palestinians a real sense of agency for the first time, you know, for, for many when we were when we were trying to gauge public sentiment in both territories, you know, a lot of people, the first thing people were saying was for the first time, it, it was clear Israel cannot act with complete impunity, which is what the international community allow for it. Um, you're, you're saying agency in the form of killing 1300 civilians and taking hostages, right? No. No, that is not what I'm saying. And actually, that has been very much condemned amongst many Palestinians. Unfortunately, it's not something that uh, the international media has really given a voice to. Um, in fact, I think Palestinian analysts have largely been been very much omitted from that analysis. We're not talking about the killing of, of 1,300 civilians. We're talking about the breakdown of a separation barrier that was quite literally the, the, the very thing that was caging Gazans inside a territory that they've been physically trapped in for the last 17 years. Uh, we're talking about the fact that they were able to take down 
Israel's southern command, you know, uh, its southern command that has been lit- quite literally governing the Gaza Strip, what comes in, what goes out for the last 17 years. That's where they felt pride, not in the killing of 1,300 uh, civilians. If anything, that has been widely condemned amongst Palestinians. But unfortunately, like I said, it's a narrative that Western media has specifically, um, sorry, has, has, has very much uh, deliberately omitted, um, you know, again, Hamas were very clear in its orders, and this is no justification, but Hamas were clear in the orders it gave. Now, like I said, there were numerous factions involved and many civilians had had, had crossed in with them. So what ended up happening there is is something that, uh, you know, at some point will hopefully be properly verified and, and will properly, th- those culprits will be properly brought to account. Um, that's not to say that Hamas doesn't share some responsibility in that, but that kind of misses the point of, 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 of the larger context that really surrounds w- what the initial operation was. Here's a clip from CNN's State of the Union program yesterday of former U.S. U.N. ambassador under Trump, Nikki Haley, now Republican presidential primary candidate, speaking about the Arab states. Where is Qatar? Where is Lebanon? Where is Jordan? Where is Egypt? Do you know we give Egypt over a billion dollars a year? Why aren't they opening the gates? Why aren't they taking the Palestinians? You know why? Because they know they can't vet them and they don't want Hamas in their neighborhood. So why would Israel want them in their neighborhood? So let's be honest with what's going on. The Arab countries aren't doing anything to help the Palestinians because they don't trust who is right, who is good, who is evil, and they don't want it in their country. So they're going to come and blame America. They're going to come and blame Israel. And don't fall for it because they have the ability to fix all of this if they wanted to. They have the ability to go in and tell Hamas right now to stop what they're doing. CNN State of the Union show had Nikki Haley there yesterday. Dr. Mustafa, how much do you disagree or agree with any of that? Uh, again, uh, I would have to completely disagree with that. It, the, the logic here is ultimately that these countries have not created this problem. So why should they then have to take the responsibility of dealing uh, with, with any spillover? Um, more importantly, Jordan has Jordan uh, has the largest number of Palestinian refugees in the region and in the world. So and again, it was a problem that Jordan never, never created. Uh, the same thing for Egypt. The rationale here is why should it have to take on a problem it hasn't created or has no part in? And secondly, there's no assurances that Israel will allow for those refugees to go back. And that is the real concern here is will those Gazan refugees be made permanent refugees just like Palestinians before them in 1948 and in 1967? Uh, so I think you that mean is a if very, Egypt very... were to, elect, to, to allow them in, correct? Yes, that's correct. There, the, the concern is that there are no assurances from the Israeli side that those refugees would, have, would be allowed back into their land. I think we can try Lou and Bell Mead again. Lou, you're on WNYC. Do we have you now? Yes. Hi. I wanted to make the point that when discussing this, a lot of people talk about Palestine and Gaza being a apartheid, but then they don't follow through with the analogy and realize that apartheid was solved peacefully by visionaries who are very, very frustrated too, like Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu. And that in today's day and age, if you're going to throw off your colonial masters or oppressors, you have to look to them, to Muhammad Gandhi, to Martin Luther King. Post 9-11, terrorism will just set you back time and time again. 
The ANC learned this lesson when they were fighting, fighting apartheid. They engaged in a bit of terrorism, and it kept backfiring. And Reagan and Thatcher kept portraying them as evil terrorists, even though that wasn't entirely true, but they just kept losing the PR war of being portrayed as terrorists. So they stopped that eventually and started engaging in economic sanctions and get, getting the West to divest in investing in South, South Africa. And that's what led to the process of gaining their rights and freedom. Right. And when they, when they got equal treatment, they, weren't, they didn't seek revenge. They didn't seek vengeance. They weren't then trying to oppress the white ruling class in South Africa. They formed a homogenous power-sharing agreement. And I feel like this is the model, the only model that will work with regards to Israel and Palestine. Oh, thank you very much. Dr. Mustafa, what do you think? Uh, again, I think that's uh, a bit of a kind of sanitized view of history. Um, you know, each of these liberation movements did have very violent elements to them, and that always came in tandem with some of the more peaceful trajectories they then tried to pursue. But let's just bear in mind here that when you talk about economic uh, pressure, when you talk about diplomatic pressure, Palestinians have had the most conciliatory leadership in their history for the last three decades uh, in the form of the Palestinian Authority and Fatah. And in that time, in that time, they have not seen uh, a viable Palestinian state, not even anything resembling a, a viable Palestinian state. At this point, uh, when we talk about the death of the two-state solution, that is because uh, Israel has effectively consumed so much land in that time that there is literally nothing left of a viable, pal territorially speaking, of a viable Palestinian state, never mind economically. Uh, again, Palestinians have tried economic, uh, going down the route of economic sanctions through, through uh, you know, campaigns like PACB, like BDS. And they've been met with, uh, you know, the, the typical anti-Semitic um, designations and, and, and attempts to outlaw them. And, and again, protests. Palestinians have tried protesting. They have tried elections. They have tried going to the ICC. They have tried every avenue possible, and not any of that has been enough to generate any kind of substantial support from uh, Western policymakers. And I say Western policymakers here because they are the ones that ultimately do have the leverage to pressure Israel. Um, you know, we've seen time and time again Israel get away with complete impunity when it has outright violated international law. When we talk about a system of apartheid, again, Palestinians are divided on this issue as well. So we also have to be very careful about when we try and frame mechanisms of liberation around a concept like apartheid, because Palestinians, because of the way that they've been divided geographically, again, by Israel, um, the way that they understand apartheid and see apartheid as an operational term is very different. For those living in 1948 territories within Israel, they suffer an entirely different system of discrimination where they are classed as second class citizens. Uh, when you talk about Palestinians in the occupied territory, you're talking about outright uh, settler colonialism. Apartheid is just one element of that. And so when Palestinians talk uh, about apartheid, I mean, they talk about it at least in the occupied territories, not within the frame of wanting a one state or equal rights. They talk about it in the sense of wanting liberation. You know, not many Palestinians want to live in a state under Israel. Many of them want their own state because they fear for what that means for their national rights. Um, but again, these are discussions that they cannot have because continuously, whenever they do, they're slapped with these designations of anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli discourse. To follow up on the last 
caller's um, question and to ask a closing question of you. Um, he was framing it in terms of what would be successful for the Palestinian cause. I saw you were quoted uh, saying, I don't think anyone really knows what the end game is at the moment, uh, but given the amount of planning involved in the assault last Saturday, it's difficult to imagine that Hamas hasn't tried to strategize every possible scenario, you said. But here we see Israel going to the extremes that it's going to to try to destroy at least the current leadership of Hamas and their infrastructure, uh, at least the military infrastructure. They're destroying a lot of other pieces of infrastructure with it, unfortunately. But, um, but how does this end well for the Hamas leadership? What end game do you think they might have if they strategize this from the beginning, it, it, assuming they anticipated this kind of response from Israel? Yeah, I'm sorry, just to go back to the, the previous point, my point was Palestinians have pursued more peaceful mechanisms that have pushed away from armed resistance. Uh, this yes, reversion to armed resistance is a new phenomenon. My point is they've never been able to generate the fair kind of support that it deserves because, again, they've always been smacked with the same accusations of anti-Semitism. Understood. Um, that's often Right. Um, with regards to Hamas's endgame, ultimately, look, no one knows uh, what their endgame is. You know, again, like I said, their political leadership were kept out of the loop when it came to this operation. Um, so even they couldn't really necessarily give you a clear picture of what their end game is. But it is very clear from what we can tell is that Hamas is now trying to shake up the status quo. What it is ultimately trying to achieve is a change in the status quo and a change in the way that both Israel and the international community deal with Palestinians and their demands. And this just goes back to a sentiment that was echoed to me when I started working on these armed groups. And when I was asking why young people were starting to... Um, suddenly, you know, uh, engage in, in, in armed resistance and clashes and what had suddenly, you know, made the West Bank start to make some noise, which, like I said, had, had been very silent, had been very um, quiet for the last decade and a half. Palestinians were unanimously um, in agreement at the, at the idea, and I'm quoting one of the militants here when he said, when Palestine is quiet, the whole world ignores us. Everyone's attention is diverted elsewhere. But suddenly, when something kicks off here, the whole world's attention is on us. And that's exactly what you can now see being echoed by Hamas. Tahani Mustafa, senior analyst at the International Crisis Group with a focus on Palestinian affairs. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <music>